Welcome back, everybody, to the Cave of Solitude, your pop culture and comic book podcast coming to you from the megacity metropolis of Toronto. This is episode 253, me and my pal Adam Chapman at the Blue Jays game 2021. Chapman, let's give it a shot. Mike is on. We're at the game. It's loud in here. Ladies and gentlemen, it's episode 253. I am with Adam Chapman. Adam, can you hear me? I can hear you just barely. It's it's gonna be it's gonna be a loud one, so intermittently we're not gonna hear each other. Uh, we're gonna hear a lot of game sounds, but hopefully we'll have some good conversation to keep it going. The the kid beside us is totally into this game and it's uh, it's it's a kid that I'll always remember for how passionate he is. Absolutely. So I have a question for you. When do you think this episode is going to go live? I'm going to try to post it up tomorrow. So today is Wednesday, uh, the 29th of September. The Blue Jays are playing the Yankees, fighting for a final wild card spot. So this is kind of historic. People are coming through. That's okay. It's all live action. Now, nothing's going to be edited. So, September 29th today, I'm going to try to release it for September 30th, hopefully before October 1st. Okay, all right. Well, the only reason I ask is obviously that this is a this is a pivotal game that we're at. It's funny because the last time we last time we recorded at a base, baseball anything was at my house watching the Yankees beat the shit out of the Jays. That's right. And then the year before that, I'm pretty sure we watched the Tampa Bay Rays uh, also take it to the Jays. So maybe this might be the first year we get to watch the Jays win while we podcast. Actually, I saw one of the best games with you. Maybe it was the first year we came where yes, they made that they crazy comeback. And it was right after we shut off the podcasting equipment, I think, too. That's like right. The game was, like, yeah, the game, was, the game was over. Was over. Yeah. And then it wasn't. And then we came back and won it. That's right. That was a very good game. Oh, yeah. Too bad. They didn't do anything, I don't think, that year as far as playoffs went. But no, that was a great game. They haven't for some time. Yeah. That's why this year is so exciting. So you were just on episode 251. I was. And it's nice to have you back so soon, like I said we would. So some of the things that I had left over, some of the things I had left over to ask you from the last podcast, I'm going to use them today. All right. Let's do it. Okay. It's in my notes. I apologize to those listening and they're saying it's way too loud in here, but this is all part of the ambiance. This is live, this is tradition, and this is going up. It's going up. Okay. Hey, it's funny, I, I'm going to be probably uh, be frustrating to your listeners because there are going to be times where I'm like an old man being like, excuse me, what'd you say? What'd you say? As we watch a double happen in front of us. Oh, no, it's going for three. Oh, no, 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 no. He almost went for a triple. The crowd is into it. This is good. It's loud, but it's good. All right, so we did some word association last time, if you remember. If you can't hear me, just let me know. So I'm going to continue with the word association. So what comes to your mind when you think of Jack Kirby? Jack Kirby? Uh, the thing. The thing smoking a, a cigar. That's what I think of. Do you hold him in the regard that everyone else does, or do you have a little bit more of like, I get he's who he is, but that's not the guy that I think of that way. I don't know if I ever could, um, just because I'm I'm much younger, and I, not that you have to have experienced it when you were first coming in, but I think that makes a big difference to a lot of people. Obviously, he's the king. Um, no one can outdo Jack Kirby in terms of volume, 
mean, him and Mark Bagley feel like the most, you know, prolific pencilers. But even then, Jack Kirby's got Bagley done by a mile. But uh, I don't know, there's something to that workman attitude, the being like getting nose to the grindstone, and also have somehow not only being hardworking and being able to and being fast, but also being so imaginative and being able to come up with so many things. Um, so I, I don't know if I quite have him in the same extreme as others, and I'm sure that's heresy. Uh, but, uh, but it doesn't mean I don't like him. I just I know that my appreciation isn't on the same level as people like Arlen Schumer and other like luminaries of that age. Right, right. I, I think he's a. For me, when I think of him, it's always someone who, uh, as I understand comics more and more, I appreciate what he did because I see him so much more in other people's work in little ways. Like I see it in I see it in like Walter Simonson and John Byrne, but very differently. And then I also see it in Mike Allred, but completely different from how it's in those guys. But yet Kirby kind of has a little bit of all of that in him. I if think that more makes often sense. than not, when you think of a Kirby. The first thing that comes to mind is either a character in solemn depression or someone getting punched in the face. And there's just something about like his artwork, which is usually one of those two things. So even the, the Kirby uh, thought of me thinking of the thing, that's kind of a morose you know, you know, thing with his cigar being sad and morose all the time. Like That's just where my mind went. But if I was to think, if you had me think, well, what else about the thing? Probably him punching someone in the jaw. Because no one punches people in the jaw like Jack Kirby. Like, true. Like one of the most iconic punching someone in the jaw images is Captain America punching Hitler in the jaw. Also Jack Kirby's. There's just something about it. Yeah, it's true. His 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 action really comes out of the page. I guess you could say. Like if his characters were alive, they'd all be like, man, my fucking jaw hurts. <laughs> like constantly. They'd be like, man, Jack, stop doing this to us. It's true. What? Sorry. What's the pitcher's name? Uh, right now, Garrett Cole. Okay, because I hear someone behind me. It sounds like they're saying, Eric, and I'm like, who's, who's taunting me right now? <laughs> All right, man. Um, let's continue name association. Um, what, do you, what do you come to think of or, or your emotions when you hear or think of Kurt Busiek? Okay, instantly I think of Avengers, but right behind it is Thunderbolts, and right behind that is Untold Tales of Spider-Man which is the 90s sweet spot one, two, three punch. So actually, I'll tell you something. Um, I interviewed uh, Glenn Greenberg, who was an assistant and then editor at Marvel in the mid-90s. And my episode that with him is actually probably not going out for three or four more days. So this is a scoop. So we had a great interview, and we talked a lot about, like, he was part of the reason Until Tales of Spider-Man happened was because of this guy. He kind of pushed for this book to exist. And he was one who kind of brought Kurt to do that book. And then Kurt was supposed to do some other um, kind of history, excuse me, history-like books, and he didn't want to do them because he didn't want to be pegged as the history guy. Because he'd done Marvels, then he'd done Untold Tales of Spider-Man, and then he'd also done um, Spider-Man Legacy of Evil, which is also a, a you know old um, a flashback to a, the you know old school history of Spider-Man. So there was a time where he became kind of the, the history guy. He was like, I don't want to be that guy. I want to do other things. Those other things ended up being fucking Avengers and Thunderbolts. So I think he did all right. Um, but yeah, that, that's that's my definitely my Kurt Busiek thought is those things. Obviously, he's done other things, but those are the first three. Where, where do you... I feel like he's, um, for somebody like us, for people like us who like the type of superhero comics we like, we would... I feel safe to say you, you would hold him in 
the highest regard when it comes to superhero comic book writers. Would I be correct in concluding that he'd be like your top five-ish in that category? I've never really codified it, but I would imagine probably he's pretty high up there. Like his Avengers run is like that's what I think of when I think of classic Avengers, which is weird because it was it still feels modern to me, but it's obviously 20 years ago, and really it was the last time that the Avengers felt like the old Avengers to me. Like everything since then, since Bendis came in, shook things up, suddenly Spider-Man was an Avenger and it felt like everyone became an Avenger. And obviously after the movies especially, there's more of a uh, bent that everyone kind of becomes an Avenger. But what the Avengers used to be, which wasn't always the best. Yeah! Yeah! Um, and another one. <laughs> Same guy who got the double last time, now he can start the game, now he gets the single with Lock and a Run. Um, yeah, there's just something about Kurt Busiek. Like, he's just, yeah, it's very special to me. Like, his run on Avengers is the last one that really felt like that era of Avengers. Uh, I'm really sad because every year I ask him, can you please do the podcast? He's like, I don't do podcasts. Like, fuck. At least he responds to you. Pardon me? At least he responds to this you. That's true. I've always been very appreciative of that. He's always been very kind to politely say no. Um... And I, I think this time I was like, well, this might be the last year of my show. We'd love to chat with you if possible. And he's like, no, I'm sorry. I just don't do that. I'm like, ah. Because, uh, like, I think that would be him and Mark Bagley are kind of my buck, two of my bucket list people. And be able to talk to him even more so than Bagley, to be honest. Because I don't think Bailey, Bagley would really give me a lot. Like, it would be a thrill for me to talk to him and just to tell him how much it meant to me, all the stuff he's done. But I don't think he would necessarily give me a lot to go on. And that's not a slight against Bagley. I think part of it's just he's an artist. And some artists are, you know, more... We talked about that last yeah, time. Yeah, more about plot, and some aren't. And music, though, would have stories. And I would love to know about like, all the stories that didn't happen. Like, all the things they wasn't able to do. And so that's what I always loved about, you know, the few times I've been able to talk with Mark... Uh, sorry, Mark Wade, not to rub salt in the wound some more. Uh, is to be able to hear, like, the stuff that both did and didn't work. Because these guys, like, were there. They, they are part of the history. And to me, they mean a lot. Um, those two guys especially. Yeah, I, I think of... Uh, there's a few writer types who I kind of think of in that vein of... These guys love this stuff as much as the biggest nerd. So, like, a Mark Wade, Kurt Busiek. Uh, I would think kind of put Roger Stern in there as like the forerunner to Kurt yeah, Busiek because I feel like they are collaborators in a way yeah. um, and I feel somewhat of the same thing between Mark Wade and Jeff Johns and their approach to their love of the characters but they obviously tackle the story or how they see the characters differently but you can feel the love shine through in the way that they tell those stories and I kind of put those guys so kind of I'm together thinking actually a lot about this and I think the difference we made between Wade and John's is that Wade is more inventive he's going to create new things whole cloth yes. whereas I feel like Jeff John's is more of a massager he likes to massage continuity and get new and really uh, grab it and kind of wring it dry with new ideas but he's like he's a he's a continuity miner in a way that Wade isn't necessarily. Not to say that Wade can't go into the continuity well with the best of them, but I think he's more of an idea generator with new things. And I think John's is really good about going back to the well on old things. Uh, even like, I love his Green Lantern, but like a lot of that was seeded elsewhere. Like even everything with, with uh, Sodom Yat, that's all in an Alan Moore story. The whole concept of what that kind of was going on then, all, all in Alan Moore text. 
Like he was extrapolating and doing something new with it, but he was mining to find it. And I feel like that's kind of what Kurt Busiek does. A miner? Like he, he does that, he, he revisits something and yes makes and those no. things I would work. Say Fabian Nicias is more of a miner. Fabian Nicieza loves to mine the shit out of stuff. You read his Thunderbolts, you're like, this is the deepest cut I can imagine. Where did you find this? He's like, well, this was the winner of a contest in 1978. And the blah, 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 blah. And you're like, what are you talking about? But it works. And actually, that's a real thing. He really did do something like that in Thunderbolts, in case you haven't gotten there yet. Um, but yeah, anyways, I digress. I apologize. I keep taking the mic away from you. No, 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 no. I, listen, I asked you the question. Uh, I, I appreciate your take on it. Okay, how about somebody like a, a Brian Michael Bendis? Nice, stolen base. Stolen base. Uh, first thing I think of is Daredevil. I love his Daredevil. It means a lot. Uh, oh, I guess it didn't matter. Uh, he's out. I guess we ended, ended up getting a strikeout, so it didn't matter. Oh, That's okay. too bad. Okay, um, so Brian Michael Bendis. That's an interesting one. Uh, generally speaking, I think of Daredevil first. Not Ultimate Spider-Man, which is what most people go to. Um, fun fact about an Ultimate Spider-Man. Years ago, I bought the Ultimate Spider-Man Ultimate Collection Volume 1. And I never bought any others, and I just didn't... I was like, eh, I own the singles. I don't know if I really need to buy it all again. Now I regret it because I don't know why, but I was like, I gave it to my son, and I was like, read Ultimate Spider-Man Volume 1, see if you like it. He's like, Dad, this is great. Do you have more? I'm like, no. Like, it's all sold out now. Like, I was able to get Volume 2. It's coming in, like, a few weeks, but everything else is, like, $100. I'm like, I can't do that. But I'm not going to give him my original issues either because, like, if I eventually sell them, I want them to be in relatively good condition. And so, like, I just can't give them to him. And so, like, I'm kind of torn. Digital? Digitally. I feel like I'm I'm Lord Business from the Lego movie. Like, I want my stuff to be pristine. I can only touch collected editions because I don't get care anyway. But the singles, no, you can't touch those. So he's he's loving it. So he's read the first volume. So that's the first 13 issues of Ultimate Spider-Man. And he's like, this is really good. And, and he's also been reading the first volume of the Amazing Spider-Man Epic Collection. So very different approaches to the material. Like one is like very decompressed and one is like boom, boom, boom. And he's like, I think I like Ultimate Spider-Man more. I'm like, oh no, I shouldn't have done this to you. But at the same time, I'm like, all right, like it's a more modern approach. It's more, you know, you get to sit with the characters more. You're not running from stuff to stuff in the same way. So anyways, he's really enjoying he can read now. I don't know if I mentioned this. He can read, um, which floors me how well his reading comprehension has gotten. So yeah, he's really big into reading comics now. So he'll just sit there with an epic collection going through, and I, I quiz him on his reading comprehension. I'm like, Zach, tell me, how did he defeat a Sandman in his first appearance? He's like, Dad, they used a vacuum to vacuum him up. But that's right. It's stupid, but it's right. <laughs> You're creating a monster. I absolutely am creating a monster, yes. Um, so you think of Daredevil first when you think of Brian yeah, Michael Bendis. I think it's my favorite thing he's done. I think it is kind of the most pure because he was still really early in his comic writing career, like from a big two perspective. Obviously, he'd been doing independent comics for a while anyway. Um, but there's just something about that first one. It feels like it leans into less of the Bendisisms that we're used to. Um, I think it, it ends the conflicts better than other books would. I think it had a better sense of how to do an ongoing narrative and feel like it kept giving you more, even though it didn't necessarily give you a big ending. It 
kept moving plot lines along. I think it was the, his best sense of how to use a supporting cast. Uh, him and Alex Malev, I don't think Alex Malev has ever done anything that, that as dynamic uh, that looked as good as that did. Um, so yeah, so that's definitely the first thing I would think of. It's it's just it still works. Like you read those, don't read his. First, I mean, his first arc is great, but it's very different from happens, the stuff yeah. he does with Malev. But uh, his stuff with Malev or Malev, whatever, however you say his name, um, that first arc is stellar. But when you have the issue all about where I don't even think really it's about Matt at all. It's just about the FBI trying to put things together on a on a board. And they're starting to piece it together. But wait a minute, Matt Murdock actually might be Daredevil. Maybe Sammy Silk is telling the truth. It's a masterclass in good storytelling. Even though I don't think Matt's in it at all. You don't care. You're riveted. You're like, oh man, what the fuck is Matt going to do now to get? I apologize. I'm swearing a lot this episode. <laughs> you're like, what is he going to do to get out of this? And you don't know. And it's exciting. And there's just something about it. It felt very real. It felt game changing. It felt like everything mattered. Yeah, a lot of times the, the it's the early stuff, right? That really ma- that puts a person on the map, and you you get excited for all the stuff that they eventually do afterwards. You give it all a chance, and you enjoy where they're going. I feel like Tom it, King's like that, right? I mean, yeah. his early stuff is really strong, and you're like, whoa, what is this? And then I feel like the more you see from Tom King, I still like him, but I do think you can you can really see his pattern as a person. Or modern Christopher Priest always uses those bo- black boxes with the yeah. text. It doesn't matter what, who he's writing, which company, he still uses it. Yeah. And so, not that it's a crutch, but and part of me likes it because it's a consistent stylistic device. But at the same time, I'm just like, if you use it every time, is it minimizing the effect of it? And it becomes a little less novel because the first time it was like, whoa, that's really cool effect. I'm glad you're using that stylistic choice. You're doing it a certain way. Yeah, he does it in everything. He did it in Quantum and Woody, I think is where he started doing that. Um, And then Black Panther, of course. And now in uh, the the Deathstroke, I know. Deathstroke was very prevalent. I don't think he used it much in in, uh, Black Panther back in the day. He used it a few times in issue. I remember seeing yeah. it there where, yeah, like it, Black Panther and Deathstroke like reminded Deathstroke me. to me was the one that really tipped it over the edge. Okay. I was like, whoa. Like, I really liked it there. I thought it really worked. But that, that was when I really started to notice it more. And then, yeah, everything he's done in the last couple of years since then has just been too much. Thank you. No problem. Um... Yeah, I'm getting actually speaking of that Deathstroke. Uh, I'm that that's the, I'm getting that uh, thing delivered Tuesday, next Tuesday, October fifth. I've been waiting to read it in its entirety because, again, us nerdy guys. I think it will absolutely deliver more on a on a reading it all at once standpoint than it ever could have otherwise. Uh, I think you will be pleasantly rewarded from getting it all in one gigantic tome. And I thought that that was one of those series that needed to be read in very large swaths because I enjoyed what was happening in it issue per issue or trade per trade as I was reading it because I like Christopher Priest as the writer but um, but I also found like this is a story that has a lot going on that I feel reading it in these in these spurts and kind of uh, take, taking a step away and waiting months to catch up to it I'm missing something and then when it got to the point where it uh, split off into the Batman back and forth series, and they put that in a hardcover, my OCD of collecting at this point was like, 
I would like to have it all in sort of the same. Do you think we'll eventually get the, the Batman by uh, Tom King uh, Batman all in omnibus format someday? Oh yeah, the way things are going now, they're gonna they're gonna split them in two or or three, right? But now it seems like everything is going to be printed into an omnibus the way they used to print everything into trade at one point. Omnibus, I'm not. I would like to give Omar the credit for for that transition of like the culture. Him and I think that guy from Gem Mint, but Omar, Omar is the guy that I I go to and I sort of trust his uh, his take on it a little because I feel like he seems like he really read it. Like this guy seems like that Batman run. No, just in general, when he reviews or overviews an Omni, like it's kind of a good place to go to. But I don't know if that really influenced the culture. Because I think of Epic Collections now, I think of Curtis. I think of Omnibus now, I think of Omar. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I get what you're saying. Like, there's a community built by it. Yeah, but I don't know if DC cares as much. Like, Marvel, no. you can tell they care. There's a direct Definitely. correlation there. That they're, you know, David Gabriel is in contact with, with Omar. There's definitely back and forth. And they listen. They listen to the channel and what's going on. And he's got a lot of people like listening who love that stuff. So, of course, they're going to pay attention. I've never felt that way about DC about anything. Like, no. have you ever heard any DC editors or even that many DC creators, besides the big ones, really going on podcasts to talk about stuff? No. There's gatekeepers on that shit. You can't you go talk to someone who has a DC exclusive. You have to go through the PR department. And there's a PR department, unless you're a gigantic podcast, they don't care. They don't care about you. They don't care about anybody. Like, they're not going to say yes. And so, like, think about how many big creators do not, from DC, do not do podcasts. Because they probably never get the request. They probably can't because they're exclusive. And they say, okay, can I do a podcast? And they're like, nah, okay, we'll see if anyone asks. And then they probably don't ever give them any because it's not big enough for them. That's, a, that's my take on it. I don't think you're wrong. Not that I've been screwed by PR department at DC before, but like Jason Fabok was always like, yeah, I'll do the podcast, sure. Let's go through DC, uh, DC promotional. I'm like, all right. And they're like, no, every time. I actually, I don't know if it's because I got to meet him in person and podcast with him in person first, but he actually was on the podcast on mine twice, and I thought that was a really big get, and then that's what happened. That's why I agree with you because it's the there's less than man. It's great when you can like the fact like I've had Tom Breeboard on my show. He's the executive editor of Marvel. Like, I would never be able to get his whoever his equivalent would be at DC. There's just no way. They don't do podcasts. You, like have you ever heard any like um what's his name? I forget who the editor chief is of, of DC right now. Have you ever heard any of them talk? No. Ever. You know what? I, I have. But but to to your point. It was always on podcasts that had clout. It was never, and not to say that your podcast doesn't have clout, but you're a, you're a podcast boots on the ground kind of one like mine. I'm gonna reach out to you. I'm doing it at my house. We're gonna talk online. I'm not gonna. We don't have sponsors. We don't have advertisements. We're pure fans with no agenda, but talking to people who we genuinely like. Speak for yourself. I always have an agenda. I have an axe to grind every time. Actually, it's funny. So, um, I don't know if you've noticed this, and I've started asking this more and more of anyone who worked at Marvel in the 80s uh, or early 90s. I always ask them if they have a Mark Ruinwald story. That's like yeah. become a thing I really enjoy doing because, like, obviously, 
I don't know Mark Gruenwald. I never knew him before he died. He died long before I, like, he died before I was really that much into comics even. But he's such a pervasive presence in the 80s and 90s that, like, if you love continuity, if you love the official Marvel handbooks, you love Mark Gruenwald. And you can't help but escape his specter. So I love finding out more about this gentleman because every story has been positive. Now, Glenn Greenberg was actually the only one who's, was it Glenn or was it, uh, it might have been Jim Salakrup. No, I can't remember. It might have been Salakrup. He made it sound like maybe that there are other sides we've never heard. But for the most part, people have said nothing but glowing things about this guy. They all love this guy. And then this guy was the soul of Marvel. He, like when he died, Marvel died to a lot of people. And so I've heard that as well. I, I, it's, I've never heard people say, wow, that was uh, Gruenwald for you. What yeah, are you no, going to do? Never. People love that guy. And you know what? Maybe, you know, uh, not to horribly misquote and misparaphrase a quote from The Dark Knight, but they maybe just didn't live long enough to be the villain of the story, which is like sad. But like he died in his early 40s. He'd been in the industry a long time. He was only like 43 or something. He was a very young man when he died. So maybe, is that it? I think so. Um, so maybe if he'd lived longer, eventually the tides would have turned against him. I was talking to, I can't remember who it was now, but I think it was Glenn. He was saying that, you know, maybe he would have not been long for Marvel anyway, if he had continued being alive. Like, like it, Marvel was starting to move in a direction that maybe eventually would have pushed out someone who loved old school Marvel like he did. I, I can see that, especially... Um, it's funny when when I sometimes I I watch a documentary and you know they come with the movies and you'll hear like history of the Avengers or like I remember the Ultimate Avengers uh, animated series they had this little documentary comic book history of the Avengers I really enjoyed it and then whenever you get to the point where Bendis or Mark Millar come on it was to fix it to revitalize it because people didn't like it and and it was your your daddy's avengers and what they're referring to is kurt Busick's pretty much pretty much his era followed by what jeff johns did and i'm thinking to myself i'm sorry but at the end of the day 50 years from now his run is going to be the one that people still yeah, talk but about it didn't sell. that's so, fine so i get it and that's the thing right and like I, I like those stories by Busick a lot. I think to me that feels like Avengers, you know? Yes. If I want to wrap myself up in some Avengers, it's his yes. Avengers, you know? Him or like maybe Jim Shooter's Avengers too has a very classic feel. Obviously Roger Stern's Avengers. Like, although Roger Stern goes in a lot of interesting directions too because he uses, you know, uncommon characters. Um, but there's just something about, but that's what the Avengers also used to be. It was kind of this weird repository of characters who didn't have their own books. And you'd have the big three cycle in and out, but then you'd have, you know, it was the Vision's book because the Vision wasn't anywhere else. So that's where he went to for those type of characters. Now, you can't deny that obviously putting Wolverine and Spider-Man on a book is going to make it sell better. And that's all it was. Like, that's what New Avengers, no, it helped, they had great art and good storytelling. But also, it was a different type of book. And it, I miss the old school event. And it's never really gone back to that, as far as I'm concerned. And that's fine. It's kind of like Iron Man. The Iron Man I grew up with de died in, in 2008. And, like, no offense to Robert Downey Jr., because his, his Iron Man is great and seminal. But everyone has tried to make their Iron Man in the comic feel like that Iron Man. And so the Iron Man that used to exist up until 2008 does not exist anymore. And that's just the way it is. And, and Hawkeye is a lot the same way. The Hawkeye I loved in Thunderbolts died when Matt Fraction got a hold of it. Woo! Yeah! 
incredibly competent and very good at what he did and then when Matt Fraction took hold of him he was a bit more of a lovable loser who was you know somehow got the hang around with the Avengers and I love the Matt Fraction run and that's what we're getting in the TV series but it's also not the Hawkeye I fell in love with and I, I've made my peace with it it's fine but he'll never be the Hawkeye I knew the, for like all those other Hawkeye uh, occurrences I've read over the years that guy doesn't exist anymore and that's okay it's fine the way comics are yeah and and what i always tell myself especially when you see them recasting characters or changing up the cast in the comic book to you know kind of suit what they're trying to have it suit i always say to myself look at all of the versions that you like on your shelf like why why are you going to get hung up and all fussy about what isn't the way it's it's right there on your shelf pick up that superman book pick up that spider-man book and read it as much as you like because no one's ever going to make that again. You wouldn't want them to. And if they tried, you would criticize it, right? So Probably. Like if they brought back the triangle, trying to do the triangle era of Superman, I don't know if it would work the same. There's just something about, I mean, there is an alchemy to putting together a comic book creative teams. And that team during the triangle era was very good. But I don't know if you could do that again. you got to recapture that, that magic. You know, if you look at who you had, you had some amazing creators all at the same time like come on you can't get that again you can't get Roger Stern Dan Jurgens, and Louis Simonson all writing books at the same time Jesus Christ that's a like all star lineup and and there was a, and Jerry Ordway too Jerry Ordway yeah I apologize for getting Jerry no, Ordway I was, I was thinking there's because there, they had like five books at one time right so I'm trying to remember all of the pe different people but even uh, Carl Kessel was it Carl Kessel was he writing one of them I guess he was at Kurt uh I'm trying to remember because Superman was Dan Jurgens. Yeah. You had, I think, was it Action Comics or Adventure was Roger Stern? I think it was Action. They, when they got on the book, the rotation was switching around a little bit more. But then during that that death of Superman or or just pre-death like, of I know Superman, Louis Simonson and Bogdanov were on Man, Man of Steel. Steel for sure. That's very memorable. Not always the best. I'll be honest. I think I don't love the Bogdanov art, but I do love the Simonson story. Yeah, she had the most heart in her story. And that was the thing, is that it, it worked in a way that they recognized that they were the sum of their parts. Like, nobody had an ego to say, this is my... No one was leading the way of, this is my story, and you guys all got to follow what I'm doing. And you kind of get that now. Like, I often refer to, you know, Scott Snyder's Batman, kind of... It was... For everything that it was, for me, it kind of ruined some of the other things that other writers had to do because they had to work around whatever he was doing. Whereas I don't think that was the case with that Superman era, where everybody's story was focusing on a different aspect of Metropolis, and some were stronger than others, but they all kind of flowed into each other in a, in a cohesive way that, you, like you said, you won't get that again. 
A big part of that comes down to editorial too, though. Mike Carlin. If you don't have a really strong editor, then you're never going to make that work. That's true. And the artists on it, like Tom Grummet, Dan Jurgens. Uh, I mean, yeah, John Bach, the novel isn't my favorite of those of that bunch, but even Butch Geis, like you don't realize. That's a good. That's a good squad of people working all together at the same time. Brett breeding on inks. I periodically, so I have one of the Return of Superman like larger kind of almost newsprinty uh, trade paperbacks. And every few years, I'll think about getting the omnibus, and I'll never get it. And then I'll think about getting the uh, those uh, when they recut all the glossier uh, trade paperbacks years back. And I would think about getting those, and then I wouldn't get those either. So one day, I'll eventually replace my Nightfall and my uh, Death of Superman, Return of Superman. And it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I have that um, Omnibus, that very, very, very first one that they put out for that. Which one, Death of Superman? Yes. Nice. The Death and Return. And it's the trim size of a regular trade paperback, the newsprint paper on the inside. I kind of like it because it's lightweight. But what I didn't notice, I did notice it, but I didn't know why. They had completely eliminated everything that involved the matrix in it everything everything why i'm not sure i think the funeral for friends stuff all the funeral for friends stuff is missing what about right after when um they have to make uh, it look like they found clark kent uh, after like in the rubble and then you see that one like superman rescues clark kent and then then we find out that's actually like matrix shape-shifting is that still there i gotta check because I haven't read through it only because I know the story so well. Like, I've read that story so many times. That's so, so upsetting. So I, I, I got it because it was uh, $11 at BMV. I said, $11 for all of this in a hardcover? Yeah, I'll, I'll have that on my shelf. Why not? But I noticed, and I never threw out my trade of uh, the funeral for a friend because of the fact that it wasn't included in this. So I always kept that because if I ever wanted to read that story, because the, the best stories in there included uh, Matrix Supergirl character. So but might have been why I didn't get one of the omnibuses because I think it, yeah, it didn't include. Now, does the new recut version of the omnibus include it or not? Yes, yes, that's all in there now. So. Restored Matrix to her glory? Yes, everything is there now, yeah. So I'm thinking about potentially getting that omnibus to, to have on my because it's one of my my most nostalgic favorite stories like something close to my heart what I grew up with my first sort of love of a continuity um, so I'd like to have a really nice prestigious sort of version of that and I like the, the one that I did have but me realizing that such an important character of that story is omitted because of some sort of continuity thing they were trying to force people to accept the Jeff Loeb Supergirl the Kara's what's your name Kara Zorro yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, sorry, what? The Jeff Loeb, yeah, he brought it back. Kara Zorrell is her name, right? Yes, Kara Zorrell. So, sorry, I, I apologize for getting distracted. I looked up on Amazon something about the death and return of Superman. It reminded me of something else, so no I dovetailed to something else. So I'm going to ask you about this other thing. So, DC 1 million had that big issue yeah. earlier. So have you looked at it recently? It looks like the listing for that item, so which we purchased it like 30 bucks or whatever, something stupid, Yeah. Uh, now has a publication date of January 2nd, 2079, <laughs> which is usually what they do when they're going to delist it or potentially get rid of it because if there was an issue and everyone bought it, it became a bestseller and yeah. now, you know, it looks like who knows what's happening with that. Well, I'll be honest, I don't really want it. You don't want it? I, I want it. 
I want it for thirty-five dollars. <laughs> I don't want DC One Million Omnibus. Like, I ha- Have you ever read it? Um, I haven't heard anything good about it. I will. I will say something good about it. What's nice about it is it is an interest. Okay, you. Were, I think you were talking about. You know how they do that uh, Marvel 1961 omnibus that just came out? Okay. Uh, with everything that came out, the month Fantastic Four number one came out. And it was in an Omar, like, I think a few hours ago, announced that they're doing a, a 1963 one with the, the month that Amazing Spider-Man was debuted in Amazing Fantasy. So it has, like, every comic Marvel published that month. Interesting snapshots into history. That's what DC 1 million is. You get this fascinating snapshot into DC history. You have these weird, you know, future versions of characters interacting with very specific, interesting, modern versions of those characters at that specific time. If you like snapshots of like uh, of the late '90s, I think you can't go wrong. And for twenty, like whatever we paid for it, thirty-three dollars. Yeah, you definitely can't go wrong. No, absolutely not. If it was, you know, a hundred and forty-dollar book, I wouldn't be like, hmm. No, I've always wanted that snapshot. I'd be like, no. <laughs> but for for that price, like, what is it? 75% off we got it for something, something ridiculous stupid. it's like a $180 book so. something like that so yeah $30 can't go wrong there but we'll, hopefully we live to 2079 21 or 2079 2079 yeah <laughs> hopefully it gets obviously rescheduled or they don't cancel the orders and we do get it because I want that book I, you know because I always wanted it did you really back in the day I was going to get that because well, you know what that, that, that fit my criteria my early omnibus buying criteria of wanting to buy events. Right. It was an event. For better or for worse, it's all there. The one thing I'm sad that's not there, and I get why it's not, is uh, Booster Gold 1 million, which was published in 2005. But his booster was going through time after 52, right? So he had his book where he was jumping through time, and so they had a, a Booster Gold 1 million issue, which is him tying in with the 1 million event, which is great fun. He's a time traveler. He can have tie into any event in DC history. That's right. And, yeah. But uh, alas, it is not in the omnibus. It would be very confusing. And so they didn't. I wish they would. When was that story published? Which one? Uh, uh, one million? Like 98, 99? So it was during his, uh, Grant Morrison's run on uh, JLA. I believe so. I think it also occurs before No Man's Land, but after Cataclysm. So in that period when everything is ruined in New York, uh, sorry, in Gotham, I believe. Isn't that, would that be the other way around? So Cataclysm comes first and then yeah. No Man's Land? Yeah, I just happen to say it out of order, but yes. Okay. I got it. Cataclysm first. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't correct me. It's okay. It's all right. We get it. But yes. I, Adam Chapman, Adam Chapman. You totally did. <laughs> nice. The crowd is happy, folks. Even paying attention, but uh, the Yankees don't have a hit yet. I ha- I did not notice that, but four it makes sense. No hits, we're winning for nothing. Obviously, anything can happen. We could suddenly fall apart, but so far, things are going well. Very well, like a solid game through and through. Everyone's you know, doing I'll their job. I'll be sad when I finally get to listening to this a week from now, and the Jays didn't make it to the playoffs. And I'm like, fuck! So much promise in that evening. Maybe they will. 
maybe this is a moment you'll always remember. I remember when they marched into the playoffs. I podcasted there. I will tell that to my wife, and you know her reaction will be, you talked through the entire game? We were talking comics. That's what, that's what she'll understand. I'll be like, I watched the game. I was processing it. We, did, we cheered. We Listen to the episode. Cheered. We heard the cheers. We heard the cheers around us. We were cheering not to worry. Okay, now now I'm going to... I have names associated with this idea, but I want to see what you come up with. So I'm going to say overrated. In your mind, when you hear overrated when it comes to what we love... Can I say yes or like what... Who do you who do you say when you think overrated? What name comes to your mind? I'm not gonna go negative today. It's it's not negative. I think it is a little. No, because no, this is the this is the reason because most likely the person that we'll say is overrated okay. is ranked as one of the greatest. I would say Alan Moore. I like Alan Moore a lot. I don't think he's Jesus. Like I don't think he's like God's gift of comics. And he was the name I was gonna mention. Pardon me. And he was one of the names I was gonna mention. There you go. So I think that would be one of them. Um, trying to think. Overrated. Uh, in some ways, Bendis, because I think I would stay, overstate his welcome. Or, you know what it is? I think he has a style, and I think he hasn't moved on from it at all. And he hasn't, he hasn't further developed as a writer. Like, I, I don't think he's different. I think he's had, if I read, you know, Ultimate Spider-Man, I read Superman. I don't think I'm seeing his maturation as an artist. Um, and so, I think for me, that's a problem. I think if you're going to be writing that long, you should have some natural development that changes you, for better or for worse, and I just don't think I ever saw it from him. So, for that reason, I would say he's somewhat overrated. And the thing with Bendis is I feel... I think you're right. The overstaying of the welcome, but also... I mean, he definitely had a great moment. He had a period there where he was on fire. But see, I think he's on fire when he writes a certain type of character. And because I don't think he was the right writer for, like, Guardians of the Galaxy, necessarily, no. right? And although I, I personally enjoy... Actually, I, here's the thing. I disagree with you, but I agree with you at the same time. Right. So the reason why I disagree with you is that I think he was the right person to launch the movie Guardians. What we were gonna, he, they knew what was coming down the pike. They knew what the movie was gonna feel like. So they started making it jokey. In Avengers Assemble first and then in its own book. So do I think that's the Guardians I ever wanted to read? Not really. But it was it the Guardians that was a natural extension of that early wave of the movies coming. It's gonna be different, it's gonna be funny. I think he was the right writer for that version that they wanted to push. Was he doing the version that I fell in love with? No, he wasn't. And I've said that like in other things before. Like my the version I love is the DNA version, that version that really codified what I wanted from that version of the Guardians. And it's the version I think that was so good That's that you could movie. make the Guardians movie. The reason the DNA for what created the movie is is DNA. DNA. Yeah, um, we wouldn't have had that movie without them. But that being said then James Gunn took it in his own comedic direction which forever changed those characters which similar like I said with Hawkeye and with Iron Man that version of the Guardians never really will exist anymore now you get close Al Ewing's version really felt close to what we got before so I do recommend that run because it was relatively short but that felt like a run that took its cues more from DNA than from the modern version as we speak about this it's actually uh, making me realize something that um 
when I speak. Oh, another one. Another. Uh, okay. Warning track. Warning track. We almost got another home run. It's exciting. Uh, back to what I was saying was what you're explaining to me is is reminding me of what um, Dave Molyneux from England had said to me in regards to when he stopped collecting Marvel or reading Marvel was that it was starting to blend too much with what the movies were doing and it kind of became predictable in regards to well this is just what they're, they're putting this out there because they made the movie like this and it was kind of taking away what made those characters those characters in the first place so it's almost like a it, the success of the movies when those movie versions come out they were almost like what the new 52 was to the comic book publishing like you'll never get that back again now that these movies are what they are and they're only what they are because of everything before this mm -hmm. so i'm gonna ask you a, kind of a weird very deep cut question can you love name it. I love it. one now i think it's one of the earliest instances of the comics uh, actually marvel comics bending to the whims of what happened in a movie can you name it one of the earliest whims. Like really bending over backwards to change something because of what a movie did. What comes to my mind, and I don't know which one came first because I wasn't reading that book, but the X-Men in the suits, the, the black leather, I feel like that was maybe... Didn't happen right away. Yes, but not, not what I'm going for because something else predated that. Okay. But predated yeah. that. Something that was in a, Mar a Marvel movie. Yes. So I'm going to say it would have been You're a spike. On the right track with X Men. On, with the X Men. Okay, okay. Uh, you know what? I can't think of it. They changed Toad's look to be more like the movie almost right away. And they gave Mystique the same look with the scales and everything. This would have been like 2000. Okay. Now, obviously, they eventually went back to normal, and they kind of forgot that short-lived period of becoming more movie-like, but they definitely did that as a direct reaction to the movie. How do you feel about that? When, when they do something like that, do you feel like, yeah, that makes sense, the movie did it better, or are you just like, oh, here we no, go? I always hated it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think I've been more patient over the years with it, and like... When Spider-Man had organic web shooters in the comics, sorry, uh, organic in the movie and then in the, the comics, I didn't love it, but I understood why they did it in the movies because I don't think people were ready for a super smart Spider-Man who developed his own web fluid in a movie. I think it was enough of a, and that would have been a reach too far in 2002. So I think it made sense to make it that he had organic webs, which I don't really like, but I get it. And then the, obviously the comics then mirrored that a couple years later, they gave him the same thing. Uh, I was glad that they went back to normal and we head back to, our, to mechanical, that always just feels right. Um, actually, I just showed my son Spider-Man 1, the first Tobey Maguire movie last week. And so he was like, they, he, they see the web and he's like, but dad, he didn't build the web shooters. And I'm like, I know son, I know. He's like, it just comes out of his wrists? And I'm like, yes. He's like, but why? I'm like, they just changed it for this movie. It's like, oh. Okay. I, I feel proud of Zach for that. For saying that. Sorry, Basil was coming in the row. Pardon me. That makes me feel proud of Zach for noticing that and for saying, why? Because 
and this is the thing like I see your point and I and I'm able to look now at movies and say yeah it wouldn't work the way it works in the comic it, people just wouldn't be ready for it they wouldn't appreciate it or understand it and maybe this is just a, a way to bypass some type of storytelling wall that we'd have to get through that we don't have to get through now but I always thought especially with a character like spider-man the creativity of the story to accommodate the fact that he's running out of webs or when they're broken so, so I'm actually giving this a lot of thought because I always thought that was a great trope right but it was also a misused one like think about how many stories are like oh I gotta go after this guy oh no I can't because of my web fluid ah shucks like how many stories went that way and I think the first couple times it's fine but then it became a trope and not a very good one so I agree with you there's something to that that classic Spider-Man-ness of him having that big battle and running out of web fluid and having to make a choice, right? Do I go here or go over there? I don't have web fluid. How am I going to get through this problem? But in practice, it was overused. Now, I guess if you're doing uh, a, a movie or a TV show, you, you're not going to use it as many times, so it's not going to get played out in the same way. So you could definitely... It's kind of like it. the utility belt trope, right? You can only use that once or twice for it to be a... a something to make you tune back in but if it's always the case you kind of again you know you get bored of that oh for sure yeah um did you have any more word associations yeah of course All i've right. got a bunch of words so, so in regards to overrated yes okay i don't like that term okay it just feels so negative I, you know here's the thing i i mean we all feel that way about, about a bunch of creators but i think i i've become more mellow in my old age <laughs> And I think as a podcaster, talking to creators, I've also become more mellow. And so, I don't know, I feel I feel it adds a certain judgment that I feel bad about making. But we're not right about it. We're not saying that our I word know. is the official. It's it's a perception. These because these are these are guys like an Alan Moore is super beloved or other people are like It's not as much for me. I haven't loved all his stuff right. as much as other people love it. I actually started to feel that way about Jeff Johns. Don't hurt me. No, I no. Love Jeff Johns. Um, I don't know. It came to a point where, like, there was a period in the mid-2000s where I was like, if Jeff Johns is writing it, I want to read this. And there became a point where I'm like, I could pass. He's, he's to me, his, like, him and Bendis are each other's era's mirror. Yes. Where they were kind of doing the same thing for both publishers, where they were writing everything, revitalizing stuff, uh, reworking ideas that people loved, versions of things that people loved. And, and breathing new life into things that were already, and sometimes not even beloved, but they were like, hey, watch this, Hawkman's cool. Hey, watch this, the JSA can work, right? And they were kind of having long distinguished runs during the same time, but they overstayed their welcome. It came to a point where it's like, okay, that's it. Yeah, I think Jeff Johns for me, I think it happened a lot earlier than most. Uh, it's funny, actually, I was listening to you I think it was with Dave uh, you know, on the episode before this that I didn't get to be on, uh, episode 252. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, you guys had talked about that run that uh, Jeff Johns did with Richard Donner on Superman, on Action Comics or whatever, one of those Superman books. And I just never cared for it. I, I really didn't like it. And then they did the, the, um, the future story with Gary Frank, which I enjoyed more, but I realized it was more because of Gary Frank doing all the heavy lifting than actually liking the Jeff Johns himself. So I think that's when I really started becoming less enamored. I also felt like he'd never 
Blackest Night didn't stick the landing for me, and everything after Blackest Night felt like a, we just kind of limped on. And to a similar fashion that, very different, but when Jeff, uh, sorry, when Jonathan Hickman finished his epic Fantastic Four story, he was then on it for like another eight issues, and those eight issues just felt like they were like extra. Like he was like, well, I'm still on this, so I guess I'm still writing. Like I feel like someone called him up and said, hey, Jonathan. Oh, sorry, I hate your mic. Uh, hey, Jonathan, um, you're actually still writing the next issue. It's like, oh, shit, here you go. Like, that's what it felt like, whereas up until then, everything felt meticulous and giant and exciting. And you got to those moments, and you're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And then the last, like, six to eight months, we're like, what is this? It's not, it didn't have any of the urgency, none of the excitement. It felt like extra. Right, I understand what you mean. Um, See, for me, my experience with Jeff Johns was those, some of those stories that you refer to were some of my first exposures to him. I know that he had already been around writing stuff for a long time, but I found myself, because I just was reading Superman no matter who wrote it, so I ended up, um, I just enjoyed the, the sort of meld of the Richard Donner movies with the Superman that I knew from the comic. Like, it was kind of blending. I right. absolutely hated that. I could not get into that. And you you had already been invested in reading comics and DC and Infinite Crisis and everything happening at that time. For me, I had just gotten back into comics during that time. There's the hit. There's the no-hitters gone now. Yeah, there that goes. That's okay. It wasn't going to happen anyway. <laughs> um, but that made me want to read the older stuff of Jeff Johns. Where now, if I go back and I read those... like I, When I read, for instance... Um, Flash Rebirth, I don't care for it the way I cared for Green Lantern Rebirth. And when I read uh, with Flash Rebirth, I would like to I would like to talk to Jeff Johns and give him five dollars and say, Jeff Johns, explain what the hell is going on here. Like, here's my five dollars. Please explain this because I don't know. Like, Flash Rebirth is confusing and weird. And I do think it also introduced the whole idea, which has been which will never be let go now because it's in TVs and movies about the Flash's parents being mur- murdered. And, right. and his dad being framed for the death. That has stuck around and it became a huge part of the TV it, show. It feels like it's always been there. But it wasn't. Right. It's only since 2005. Right. It hasn't been there forever. He had a family. He had parents. You right. Know? And he just took that all away. And I just didn't feel like there was a need for that. I guess the thing there is that I didn't feel like Barry Allen's life needed tragedy like that. Was, he was a hero because that's what heroes did. You know, he was a good guy. You know, and I just, I always felt like that was something I didn't need injected into my, my Barry Allen. Yeah, and, and looking back at it as well, oh. uh, there's a run by the Yankees, maybe a rally. Um, going back to that time of him reintroducing characters that were taken off of the stage, there were some that should have been just left there. Like at that point, Wally West had been given so much, so much story and so much uh, I don't know, he, he, he was, we grew with him, to, we grew to love this guy, and and now to, it wasn't, Hal Jordan didn't have, like Kyle Rayner wasn't in the same beloved way of, of Wally West. No, I will say, I was very excited that Barry was coming back. Me too. So I was, I loved Wally, he was obviously like my era's Flash, but I really kind of loved that, again. Superman 220 is a comic book that means a lot to me. I mentioned it pre-podcast today. And it has Barry Allen the Flash in it. And it's my first time I ever saw Barry Allen. So it has a special place in my heart. It was a comic that my dad gave me. 
My dad didn't ever really like comics, didn't really care for them, but for whatever reason, he still had this comic in his possession. I found out years later when I looked it up, I'm like, this is from 1969. You were 19 years old. You liar. Because he was like, oh, I stopped reading comics when I, after I was a kid. Fucking liar. Unless you had a time machine and went and bought something from 1969, you were reading in the university. So shut your mouth. Um, but uh, so that's where I first kind of met Barry Allen. So I was really excited Barry Allen was coming back. I was really excited about, about Flash Rebirth because I really wanted to see the character back. My number one problem wasn't that he came back. It's that it felt like, you know, he should have come back old. <laughs> like, they bring him back, and suddenly Iris is kind of hot again and young. Right. She was grandmother age. She was older. She was significantly older, and that's the way she'd been portrayed for years. And I just felt like he should have been the elder statesman again. Like, he should have been, like, obviously Jay Garrick is a bad example because he doesn't age after a certain point, but he always kind of looked like the elder statesman. And that's kind of what Barry needed to be. But they wanted him to be too young. And that, I had a real problem with that because that's not who the character was. He wasn't a young man. He was an, he was an older man. He was, mid, he was middle-aged. And they did not give us that version of him or Iris. And then that was kind of, for me, the, the start of the fall of me caring about, a lot about that character. Now, I read the first couple of years, the Manipul and Buccellato Flash, and I liked it for the art more than the story. The story was kind of really ho-hum. Uh, the artwork was next level. Um, and then I kind of stopped caring. And then I would come back sometimes to read The Flash, but it's never... And then Rebirth happened, and it just everything got more convoluted and mixed up. And then you had whatever the hell Heroes in Crisis was trying to assassinate the character of, of uh, Wally West. Then recently, they've tried to fix that wrong to show that it wasn't Wally West who killed people. It was something else. And it was convoluted. It was messy. But I appreciated that at least it undid Heroes in Crisis because that was terrible. Yeah, see, I agree with you on, on everything you said in regards to Barry Allen. He should have been more of that legacy character, a, a person that Wally could could go to as a mentor and to really get feedback and, and guidance in whatever areas of his life that he didn't have them. Oh, the game is turning around. It's going to be an interesting evening, Chapman. Oh, my God, this is crazy. Um, I haven't read it since I originally had the, the trades of the uh, Manipol run on, on New 52. But the I guess the um, leeway I give it is that this was the first time, really, that you had a, a new writer and artist take a stab at a character that was relaunched. Right? So I kind of... I, I don't want to compare it to the Wally West great flash runs of Mark Wade and Jeff Johns because that character had been kind of established there was writers before Mark Wade who had given that character a little bit of a fandom and traction and then he just built on it and then John's built on it and they, they did such really cool stuff almost to the point where it's like it'd be, you'd be hard pressed to top that I mean it could be done but you had back-to-back -back solid runs so now with this Manipul uh, Barry Allen take, it's like, well, this is just a fresh take, and I'm not going to compare it to, to what this was prior to. Take it for what it is. And the art, and I think Dave Molyneux made the point of, like, it feels comforting. It's like a little blanket, and that's how the book kind of makes you feel. But you're right. The story is a groundbreaker. I know a lot of people are talking about... Um, 
Joshua Williamson. It didn't add anything new, right? No, it, 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 but it just felt like a solid story. A solid 25 issues of... You're nicer than I am. <laughs> I guess so. Maybe, maybe I wanted my... to love it. Like, again, I... You know, I pared down a lot of my buying at that time, but I was like, I'm sticking with Flash. And then every issue was kind of like, was that the right choice? Yeah. I'm not sure if it was. Yeah. And and that was what I also found. I tried to reread the um, the Nightwing series. Even Grayson for me. A lot of people loved Grayson. And that was a, a run where I feel like it got a lot of hype. But it didn't, it didn't stick a landing because it went to different writers. And for all the hoopla that it gets, it was kind of like disjointed at times, it felt. And the Nightwing run, I like the art, I like the action, I like, I didn't mind the design of the book, how the world looked, but I felt he was handcuffed by uh, Scott Snyder's story so much that he could never, I, I feel like Jonathan, uh, Kyle Higgins could probably do a lot more with Nightwing but he had to constantly play in that Snyder playground, which which brings the book down for me. I don't know if Flash will feel the same rereading it. Yeah, that's fair. The right, artwork. What, what's the, I want to know what's next on your list. Okay. So. Okay. Okay. Um, my question for you. We have a musical interlude. Yeah, we do. <laughs> uh, most underrated story for you. What's a story that you hold? near and dear to you and some people it may not come they might say oh yeah that's a good story but you're like no that that is so much better than people recognize and one day that'll get it to just do right, i'm gonna i'm gonna cheat a little i'm gonna give you a large amount of issues that's fair uh the beginning of fabian nicias's run on thunderbolts up until issue 50. that is masterclass storytelling it has a murder mystery it has a mysterious character, you're not sure who it is. It has clues being peppered in. It has the return of a character we thought was dead. It has um, an immense build-up to a game-changing decision. It is one of my favorite storylines, maybe ever. I just love it. One second, So, I've heard. It? I have not read it. I have the issues in uh, collected format, and uh, I definitely intend to read it because I've heard nothing but good things. And everybody who's read that series um, always loved what Kurt Busiek and Mark Bagley did. And I have never heard anybody say that when Kurt Busiek left, the book fell off. A lot of people say it may have been better. And that's rare. It was a different book, right? I mean, it was still the same, but slightly different. But the 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 idea was still there. Um, yeah, there's just something about watching these villains try to be heroes, and realizing that maybe they can be. Um, I guess it's it's definitely a trope. And it, yeah! Woo! That was a bad goof. Excited there. That was a bad goof on the Yankees' part. Jays are on second base. Oh, it's Springer again. Right. Three for three. Yeah. That's insane. So his heads up base run, and they go to second on the drop ball. Turning around. So if someone's listening to our podcast, really what they should do to get the full effect 
is to watch this game back. <laughs> At the same time, sync it up for where we are, and then you'll be able to live the excitement with us. <laughs> or the heartbreak if you're a Yankees fan. That's true. Hopefully the Jays win this game. Again, unless you're a Yankees fan. That's right. Um, what were we just saying? Oh, yes. Curb, uh, the Thunderbolts. Fabian Nicieza, your most no, underrated. Done, he did more work on the Thunderbolts than just those issues, but there's right. just something about, like, there's a momentum to those issues because he's building up to issue 50, and it's 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 masterful. I still remember when I, reading it when it came out, I was in high school. I remember almost shaking with anticipation just reading it. You know, this is amazing, and there's something that Hawkeye does. It's really a great moment for Hawkeye. This is what makes it harder for me to reconcile him with the jokey version of the character now. And it's just so good. And no one ever talks about it. Uh, but it's it was really enjoyable. That's why I thought, why not talk about that here now? It'll, I think it'll change now with the potential of everything being turned into a movie or a television show. And everything being recollected in these, these sort of uh, prestige or luxury formats. Because you it makes you... Oh, okay. And we got a runner going to third, and he's safe, and we're good. The roar of the crowd tells the story. Um, I think yeah, that is the sound of, what, 30,000 people. That's right. You know, I will say it's been a while since I've seen this many people and feeling like it was safe to, to be around this many people. So I appreciate you bringing me to this game. This is a nice time. And thankfully, we're, our masks are off right now, which is a nice change. It's nice because this is, this is still our thing, right? Like, we've we've done this, what, four times now? This is our fourth, fourth year in a row. Fourth year, okay. I have to check the archives, but I think it's four in a row. Okay, I think that's right, yeah. Because I had forgotten 2018. I remember 2019. I saw you mention it the other day. It was in one of my memories that we that you were posting about it. So, so next, what's next up on the list? Okay. If you could read one writer for the rest of your life, who one would it what? be? One writer for the rest of your life. It put, someone put, put you say, okay, we got to get rid of the collection, but you can keep one writer's uh, bibliography of work. Who would you keep? hard absolutely hard so part of me wants to go with someone like Stan Lee because he wrote so much so I wouldn't have to repeat the, the work as often <laughs> because he wrote so many comics so I'd have a lot to choose from um, probably someone like a Mark Wade you know, he's written enough different things different characters that I think that'd be enjoyable again very different atmosphere to it uh, so I think that probably be uh, one choice Claremont might be another uh, only because, again, there's he has a lot of content, so you can read all of it uh, without having to you keep looping back in on itself when you ran out. Um, yeah, I don't know, that's hard. One. I think, yeah, I mean, definitely, I think Sadarsky would be on that list as a more of a modern option. Uh, I, once upon a time, I would have said maybe Dan Slott, but I've, I've cooled on some of his stuff, and I don't feel the need to read all of it. Uh, yeah, Mark Wade was probably number one. I think that's a that's a good pick because, unlike um, yeah, nice. And Guerrero has done a double, possibly a triple. No, he's not gonna go for it. RBI double. Well, Very I'm not nice. getting a triple. He's pumped up. You can see it. Listen to the crowd. 
good to be in Toronto. Um, Mark Wade, rough game for Garrett Cole. That's okay. Put him to work. Mark Wade's a good choice, I would say. Maybe better than Claremont because Claremont's got a, a, a swath of comics that he wrote, especially in the 80s at, the, at like top level. But it's all X-related. We're at. Um, I'm gonna throw in a couple more. Sorry, Roger Stern. Yes, that's a good one. Because I don't think there's anything bad he's ever written. Uh, Dan Jurgens, um, I think would be a solid pick too. A lot of fun stuff he's worked on. You'd have a lot of fun reading. The Dan. only problem with, with Dan Jurgens and Roger Stern to a lesser extent is that if you're reading his Superman, you're only getting one fourth of the story because you're only reading his stuff. You're like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> like last issue, Superman was just hanging out. This issue, Superman just died. What is yeah. happening? There's no lead up to this. Which is funny because that's how I actually used to read comic books, was yeah. reading like a portion of the story and having to fill in the gaps in my imagination. But oh, yeah. but Wade and, and uh, is a good pick in the sense of not that he's you know the best writer all time, hands down, but it's it's a consistent quality across the comic book universe. You're gonna get a solid Captain America, a solid Flash, you're gonna have a little Avengers, you're gonna have a little Justice League, a good Superman story. Like across the board, you're gonna be getting quality. And then of course you got Kingdom Come. I got two more, uh, Jerry Conway. That's a good one. A lot of stuff, a lot of from both publishers. And J.M. Uh, Demetrius. That's on my list too. Now, the problem with Jam Demetrius is that's all you're going to be reading for the rest of your life. Is that some of that shit goes to dark, sad places. It definitely, it does. It, it gets, and that's the thing is that he does it with the superhero stuff, but then he even does it with stuff like uh, Moonshadow that becomes very philosophical. Well, like, even his, his superhero stuff is still philosophical. Very, very. But it's tons of it. But there's enough of it that. You can still have superhero fun. You can, if you want to, ignore it, or you can really dig in, which I think is the beauty of his work. But our picks are kind of the same for the most part. I think I was trying to think of this myself when I asked you these questions, and I don't know if at some point in time John Byrne would be a good pick, just because there's a lot of good X-Men stuff where he's kind of considered a co-writer. You got the Fantastic Four era. And then, of course, the stuff he did, like the stuff that he became known for was really good quality stuff. And he drew it as well, so you're getting like a nice, consistent little world. But then he was also the kind of guy to really take away everything that you, that you thought you liked because he felt it needed to be fixed. And you don't have to do that all the time. That's the one hang-up I got, well, one of the many hang-ups you can have with a writer but that's something i feel that i like about john Byrne, but i also dislike about him. yeah i can see that <laughs> okay next up if you had somebody write oh actually let's do it this way if you were in charge of a comic book universe could be your own be marvel dc whatever you want who's the artist of your universe who's drawing it my universe oh um, I don't know. If you were uh, the editor of storytelling, I'm an editor of storytelling. It's something I'm doing. That's a fly ball. That's a fly ball, man. Don't worry, they caught it this time. Um, I would say, I don't know. I feel like I'm really boring because I always go with the same ones. It's like a Mark Bagley or John Romita Sr., uh, Lee Weeks. 
Jim Lee. You know, those are those are the artists that I love. And uh, so probably something like that. Maybe a Pete Woods just to throw in some something different. Really, uh, Pete Woods. Maybe some Ledron. I love Ledron. Very Jack Kirby-esque. I don't know. That's a that's a tough one. Because without really thinking about what I'm what the comic is, I don't know if I can really pick a proper artist for it. Like if it's a dark, dirty comic book universe, I don't want Jim Lee art doing the art. He's the wrong fit. But if I'm doing But that's the thing, how what kind of a universe would you want? Don't don't try to think of what it's gonna be. You're the one who's kind of oh, like when you ask me, hey Adam putting it together. I have a comic book universe now. I'm like, the first thing that comes to my mind is like, am I doing an American Splendor comic? Like, is it real life? Have you read American Splendor ever? I, never. I, I, I intend to, and I want to watch that movie as oh well. Oh my God. So I remember being at the world's biggest bookstore in 2002, and I think it was 2002, maybe 2003 actually. Maybe, I think it was 2003. And I saw, they had a big paperback collection of American Splendor. It had the movie poster cover, so obviously it was meant to tie in with the movie. And I picked it, I, I, look, I flipped it open, read a few pages, I'm like, I'm in. I'm going to buy this. I've never heard of this before. I know nothing about it. This is good. I like this. Brought it home, read it, loved it. Could not get anyone to see the movie with me. So when the movie came out on DVD, I bought it the first day I could. Love that movie. It's magic. It's a magical movie. It's uh, a great interpretation of that comic, of that guy's sensibilities. Paul Giamatti is fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. It's so good. Love that movie. It's uh, it's very heartfelt and, and kind of bittersweet, but it's very nice. Yeah, I, there was a moment where I was just about to press play on, You're that close. I was so close, and it was just. So, I said. I said to my wife, "I go. Uh, you want to watch this, or you want to watch something else?" And I think I figured I'd be able to go back to American Splendor to watch it. And I think the next time I did, it wasn't available. So I'm regretting that. But you have spoken very, very highly of it. And every time I see a picture of it, I think of you telling me how much you liked it. So I, I am going to read it at some you point. Can in buy time. it on iTunes for thirteen dollars. And... Just might do it. Or you can rent it for five dollars. Apparently, it's on Crave somehow. Oh, is it really? Well, who knows, right? I feel like with Crave, what level of Crave is it on? Is it on basic sure. Crave? Is it like sure. extra super level Crave? Is there an American? There's no American Crave, is there? I don't know. I have no idea. I think I, I have. I feel. But anyways, I, I I highly recommend the movie. It's very charming. Uh, I hope you like it because if you don't, I'm gonna feel personally responsible for having robbed you of thirteen dollars. I have recommended if I saw you more often I would just give you my DVD but I might want to watch it in the next year now, now that we spoke about it you're like I think I feel like watching that movie I'm not going to lend it to Eric just yet um, so, so, I would also then recommend the comic now again the collection I have you know it, it's just a, I don't even know how they chose what to collect in that particular collection but it's a lot of fun and when you pick up different American Splendors like they're, they're just snapshots of this guy's life uh, but they're very engaging, very interesting. He's very matter-of-fact. He's very plain-spoken. He's just a dude, you know? He's just a guy. He's he's a file clerk, as he would say, you know? He writes comics, and they're underground hits, but he's a file clerk. And after all those years, he was still a file, file clerk. He retired, and then, you know, not long after, unfortunately, he died. But, uh, yeah, I definitely recommend American Splendor. I don't know why I mentioned it. Well, you were referring to the different type of universes that you oh, could yes. be, you know, the story could be telling. American Splendor universe, yes. Okay, how about yours? In My life? If, if your own life, who do you feel would be the right artist to convey the story of your personal life? 
and your friends and what you do and all that kind of okay. stuff. Okay, only because I think I'm a generic and I want a generic look is uh, Tom Bieland, who did True Story, Swear to God, uh, or any of the guys who did American Splendor, or uh, Scott McCloud, who did Understa uh, Understanding uh, Comics. Because uh, they have a very natural perspective and a very kind of slightly cartoony, but still very like grounded and down to earth. And that's what I probably would want. Something very grounded and down to earth. Tell my story. I like it. Extremely boring story of a, of a guy who was misdiagnosed as narcolepsy, but really had an idiopathic hypersomnia, but figured out his way to muddle through. He's got a really fun podcast. Two pretty great kids. Talk about something that really does not look good visually is podcasting. But you got a pretty good life. Oh yeah, I love it, my life. It's great. It, that's what I mean. It's not boring. You'd have what you'd have. A, I bet. I mean, I enjoy it, but I don't think people would be paying me three dollars a month to read it. You know, you'd be surprised because you probably never thought you would enjoy American Splendor, right? The guy. I didn't know anything about it. It was there even worse know. than that. You know what? You asked me not long ago if I had a blind buy that ended up working out. I guess American Splendor would have been one of them because I had no knowledge. I didn't have. This is two thousand and like two or three. I didn't have a smartphone. I was at a bookstore, saw something, read a page, thought, that's funny. It's a decent, like, 18, 20 bucks. I'll pick this up. Totally blind. Knew nothing about it. Didn't even know it was really a movie. Didn't know anything about it at all. So I think that would satisfy your criteria from episodes ago where you asked me about a blind buy. I knew eventually I'd come back to it. You know what? I'm really happy that that question had so many different variable answers and also answered the question from the previous show that followed this on my original list. It worked out perfect. There we go. Okay. Guilty pleasure. Do you have a book that you may know as like, I know in all of my, you know, comic book experience and expert opinion at this point, it might not be the, the strongest the stuff. Saga. That's it. It's a guilty pleasure because a lot of people would say it's some of the worst Spider-Man ever. And I love it anyway. I agree. I, I of myself. I can't help myself. I will. I will enjoy it. I will defend it. I will then put my head down and say, hope that no one throws stuff at me. But I love it. I I That's share it. the opinion, and I and what's worse is that I. It's not even just based on nostalgia. Is that I read it as a full-grown adult in my thirties, mm -hmm. and I I saw why people would have felt how they felt about it. Like it went a little bit long, very long. Not a little bit. Very long. Yep. But there was a, similar to that Superman era, you had a lot of good people working on something that you might not ever see again. And with all of the junk that was surrounding 90s comics and publishing and forcing collectability, there's a lot of good stuff during that time. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I, uh, because I can't leave all enough alone, I looked up how much it would cost to get you American Splendor on DVD right now. It's also $13, so... You know, if you want digitally, it's the same price as physical media right now. Uh, you know what? You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much. I don't know how many times... I don't know how many times I've listened to your podcast and how much money it's costed me. Without being a paid subscriber to your show, it's cost me a lot of money being your friend. <laughs> Thank uh, you for taking me to the baseball game. Yeah, oh, I'm very happy it has uh, cost you money to, uh, to listen to my show. Uh, and you realize things you never knew, you never knew. Which, if you realize that that's a quote from a Disney song, can you name it? You know things you never knew, you never knew. Is that from uh, Little Mermaid? Nope. Uh, things you never knew. Pocahontas? Yes. Hey. Hey? Are you surprised? I'm very impressed. 
you, you, got, th- you got the colors of the wind right there. You didn't. <laughs> you didn't think I would have known a Disney song like um, that, did you? I I don't know your Disney experience well enough to know, but I was like, you know what? I hope he gets this. <laughs> I was hoping. I was I was rooting for you. <laughs> that was good. No, it was a good quote, and I and for and I heard the song in my head, and I just needed one. One or two guesses, but I'm happy I got on the second one. That's okay. A couple folks walking through the aisle. That's all the buzz is for. We're still here with you. It's funny. We seem to have really bad luck with that. Like, there's been times where like we're constantly up and down. That's okay. It's part of the ambiance. This is true. Actually, I am thinking about making a run for a, a dugout deal soon. It's very far, but it's budget-priced items. So I don't need a giant drink, but I like a slightly smaller one. Okay. Because I've been talking a lot. <laughs> I think I think it is time for us to go and get a drink, uh, an alcoholic beverage, while we finish off this baseball game. I have no more things on my list. Is Nothing. There, it, no. Because I, I used no, I used some of them on the last conversation okay. we had, right? So I said, let me just, I'll I'll make it like almost a two-parter. Okay. Is there anything that you want to add before we wrap this up? Because we have been going for an hour and twenty. Wow, really? Um. Well, besides the pimp my show, listen to comic shenanigans. We got some good stuff coming up. Um, nothing is immediately coming to mind. Um, I'm sure I'll come up with something later. Uh, oh, you know how I always say like you have to ask questions even though they might seem dumb ones. So I had Jim Salakrup on my show. So I had him on for like about an hour. Um, he, we didn't talk about the biggest hits that we could have talked about. Do you know who Jim Salakrup is? He's a Marvel editor. I specifically I think of Spider Man. Uh, yes, now, among other things, he uh, was an editor of Marvel for 20 years, and uh, he um, he was the responsible for getting Tom McFarlane on Amazing Spider-Man, amongst other things. So I had him on my podcast, and we talked more about Smurfs than we talked about anything else, because he uh, his he helped found a company called Paper Cuts uh, about 15, 16 years ago. And they, for years, have been publishing Smurf comics, uh, getting reprinting the original Teo Smurf comics. So I started buying those for my wife, and I bought 26 volumes of them, and then they just disappeared. And I had pre-ordered 27 and 28, and then they never came out, and then they no longer had a release date. I was like, what up? And if I hadn't asked, I never would have found out that they discontinued it and decided instead that the, uh, the license holder wanted to instead have thicker volumes, so they have thicker volumes that they're doing instead now, and so they're, they've changed the numbering, they're starting over from one, but it is all new material, so it doesn't repeat any of the material I already have, and I would never have known that if not for him. So as I spoke to him, I bought three volumes of it uh, as, as we were speaking. One actually arrived today, the morning after, or the afternoon after I spoke to him, I got the first volume sent to me. The other two are pre-orders, but uh, if I had not asked, I would never have known. I just would have been waiting for these phantom volumes to never arrive. Out of all of the Jim Salakrup stories, that's the one that we're ending the show with. No one else will ever have that Jim Salakrup story. I shit you not. It is the most unique. And But here's the thing, right? When he does podcasts, people ask him about Marvel. No one asks him about paper cuts. No one asks him about what it's like to reprint Smurf books and the challenges were within, so that was fun for me. Well, I think that's really what podcasting is all about at the end of the day, right? Tapping into that thing you love and not...
being embarrassed about it, even if it's to talk about Smurf licensing. The more research you do, the more fun you can really have. So like Glenn Brimberg, who I already mentioned, and is going to be on my next episode. Um, I had looked up, I looked up the list of work, books he had worked on and written, and I, I actually was able to find, get a hold of a couple of them. And one of them, uh, it was like a random issue of Uncanny Origins, which was a very short-lived, late 90s, I think it was a dollar book. And he did one issue with the Hulk, kind of doing an origin of the Hulk. And I read it, and I saw that it was, you know, with Mark Grunewald was the editor, but it was after Mark Grunewald had died. And I saw at the very end, there was a very beautiful dedication to Mark Grunewald. So I asked him my standard Mark Grunewald question, and then I asked him, because I'd done the research, that I'm like, in this story you wrote, it's dedicated to Mark Grunewald, can you explain what happened? And he's like, that was one of the last writing assignments that was ever given to me by Mark Grunewald. So I had to dedicate it to him. But if I hadn't read that issue, I would not have known to ask that question. So I love being able to ask those types of things. You do the research, you find something small like that, and you make it, you make it a question. And then the person who's, doing the, who's on the other side of the interview, they know that you care because you had the wherewithal to do the research, to do, to go the extra mile to read something that you didn't have to read. I didn't need to read that. I had other things I could have talked to him about, but I went and found this one particular book and was able to find something special there that I knew he'd want to talk about. So that was very, that's, you know, if I can ever give any advice to podcasting interviews, that's what I love to do about it. I love to, to that's always part of the research is to find that thing that you can really show that you care and that it's something interesting that no one else is ever going to ask. I think people, what I've learned as well is that people really appreciate when you remember something. Oh, yeah. And, and just in day-to-day life, when you remember a person's name, when you remember a small detail, their children's name, something small, it goes a long way. So I think that's great advice in life. Pay attention. And and you'll be surprised at uh, what you get in return. I feel like you've, that's basically been your moral of the story since we've been talking today. Because when we were at the fry truck before this, you were talking about memory and being present yeah. and really listening and what you take in. So I feel like you're trying to encourage me to be a better listener. I'll work on it, Eric. I promise. <laughs> I was complimenting you on your memory, not telling you that you got to be... <laughs> All right, let's go and get some beer and let's go Blue Jays. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you again for being on the show so soon. And I hope you come back sooner than our usual one-year uh, Blue Jay anniversary. We got to do this more often. All right, everybody, thank you for listening. Let's go Blue Jays and listen to more episodes of the Cape of Solitude and Comic Shenanigans coming your way.